You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. This episode of the podcast is being sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy, by Donald Miller. As we put out this episode, Miller's new book on Vicksburg is just a few days away from release. In fact, it'll be out on October 29th. But we've had a copy for a while now and can say that if you're a fan of the podcast and enjoyed our coverage of Vicksburg here on the show, then you'll definitely want to pick up Miller's book and continue exploring the story on your own. As Rich said, the book will be available in just a few days, so pre-order a copy of Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy by Donald Miller. It'll be released in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, or reserve a copy at your local bookstore or library. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 298 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, in the last show, we asked the question, what brought those 165,000 soldiers to Gettysburg the first three days of July 1863? And we said that question would be our starting point to look at the campaign and battle. In seeking an answer to that question, our road to Gettysburg actually begins in the Confederate capital city of Richmond, Virginia, and a meeting that was held there in May 1863. As you guys know, in the first week of May, Robert E. Lee had commanded the Army of Northern Virginia as it defeated a much larger federal force at the Battle of Chancellorsville near Fredericksburg. Now, on May 15th, Lee is in Richmond, to meet with the Confederate President, Jefferson Davis, and Davis's Secretary of War, James Seddon. As y'all know, Stonewall Jackson had been seriously wounded by friendly fire at Chancellorsville. After complications set in, Jackson had died eight days later on May 10th. Stonewall's body was then taken to Richmond, where it had lain in state in the Confederate Capitol building, in the Hall of Representatives watched over by an honor guard of infantry. After the public viewing, Jackson's remains were conveyed to Lexington, Virginia for burial. 
As y'all recall, Jackson had made his home in Lexington for the 10 years prior to the outbreak of the Civil War, while he taught at the Virginia Military Institute. Stonewall's death and funeral procession cast a deep shadow over Richmond. Jackson's casket had departed the city on May 13th, just two days before Robert E. Lee's meeting with Davis and Seddon. Lee knew that Stonewall, as a general, was irreplaceable. After Jackson's wounding, when he learned that Stonewall's condition had taken a turn for the worse, Lee told the messenger, Give General Jackson my affectionate regards, and say to him, He has lost his left arm, but I my right arm. Tell him to get well, and come back to me as soon as he can. However, Stonewall would never be returning to the Army of Northern Virginia, and so, perhaps, Jackson's death cast a deep shadow not only over Richmond, but also over Robert E. Lee as well, because the observant, gossipy War Department clerk, John Beauchamp Jones, noted in his diary that he thought Lee, on May 15th, quote, looked thinner and a little pale. The May 15th meeting was held at the War Department in the old Virginia Mechanical Institute building on Franklin Street, and it was a pivotal moment in Confederate history. But to the everlasting frustration of historians, no minutes or notes have survived, so we have no way of knowing what exactly was decided and discussed that day. In fact, it's only in Clerk Jones' brief diary entry that the three participants are even identified as Davis, Seddon, and Lee. However, despite the absence of any records, it's almost certain that it was the Confederates' Vicksburg problem that was the catalyst for the May 15th conference. That's because in the spring of 1863, the scale holding Federal and Confederate military fortunes hung in an easy balance. Lee, with victories at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, held the upper hand in Virginia. Meanwhile, in Middle Tennessee, the armies of Braxton Bragg and William Rosecrans stood at a stalemate. But it was out in Mississippi where the rebels were in trouble, as Ulysses S. Grant's Federal Army was closing the noose on Vicksburg. Because of this worrisome strategic situation, there was a debate that had been going on among the top civil and military leaders of the Confederacy. An influential group, including Secretary of War Seddon, Generals P.G.T. Beauregard and Joseph E. Johnston, Lieutenant General James Longstreet, and a number of Confederate congressmen, advocated placing Lee's successful army on a temporary defensive and sending a portion of it out west in an attempt to remedy the difficulties the rebels were having out there. Seddon had actually suggested such a move to Lee back in April 1863, but Lee had opposed the idea and argued that an advance across the Potomac by his army would be the most effective way to relieve the pressure on the Confederate forces in the West. The Battle of Chancellorsville, which occurred almost immediately thereafter, interrupted this exchange between Seddon and Lee. But now that Chancellorsville was won and Virginia momentarily safe, Seddon again approached Lee with a proposal to send a part of Lee's army to the relief of Vicksburg. 
By now, though, Grant had crossed his army to the east bank of the Mississippi River, and his march inland, toward Jackson, threatened to drive a wedge between Pemberton and Vicksburg, and the force that Joe Johnston was cobbling together to go to Pemberton's aid. On May 9th, Johnston had been placed in overall charge of operations against the Federal invaders in Mississippi, and by the 13th, he had grim news to report to Davis and Seddon in Richmond. Johnston said he had arrived in Jackson only to find that the enemy had moved too fast and had already got between him and Vicksburg. Johnston told Davis and Seddon, quote, I am too late. This was the highly upsetting state of affairs out in Mississippi, as it was known to Davis and Seddon, as they prepared to meet with Robert E. Lee and try to find some solution to the crisis. With the defenders of the Western Confederacy stretched very close to the breaking point, and especially in view of the rapidly deteriorating situation at Vicksburg, Secretary Seddon had telegraphed Robert E. Lee on May 9th with a specific proposal concerning George Pickett's division of Longstreet's Corps. As you guys will recall, Longstreet and two of his divisions, Pickett's being one of them, had actually missed the Battle of Chancellorsville because they were on detached duty down in Southside, Virginia. When Seddon telegraphed Lee on May 9th, Pickett's troops were just then in the vicinity of Richmond, so Seddon asked if Lee would approve of the division being sent as quickly as possible out to Mississippi to join Pemberton in the defense of Vicksburg. Lee's response was not long in coming and was, for him, uncharacteristically blunt. He telegraphed Seddon that the proposal, quote, is hazardous and even becomes a question between Virginia and Mississippi, end quote. Lee also revealed that he didn't trust Pemberton's abilities when he added, quote, the distance to be traveled and the uncertainty of the employment of the troops are unfavorable. Lee followed his telegram with a letter in which he expanded on his arguments against sending any of his troops out west. He pointed out that it would be several weeks before Pickett's division could even reach Mississippi, and by that time the issue there would most likely have already been decided. He also repeated his concerns that Pickett's men, if they should get there in time, would most likely be misused by Pemberton. Lee summed up his objections by stating that, with regard to Pickett's division, quote, the uncertainty of its arrival and the uncertainty of its application caused me to doubt the policy of sending it. But Lee's most persuasive objection was framed as a warning, a warning that if any troops should be detached from his army, in fact, unless he actually received reinforcements, then, quote, we may be obliged to withdraw into the defenses of Richmond, end quote. In other words, Lee was telling Seddon that he believed sending any troops from his army to Mississippi would mean he would very likely have to surrender the initiative here in Virginia to the Federals. Here again was the idea, expressed in Lee's telegram, that, quote, it becomes a question between Virginia and Mississippi. 
When Jefferson Davis was shown Lee's response, he gave it his endorsement, saying, The answer of General Lee was such as I could have anticipated, and in which I concur. And so Pickett's division would not be going to Mississippi, but that hardly marked the end of the high-level debate about Confederate strategy. And we know that debate was still going on because of Lee's summons to the meeting with Davis and Seddon in Richmond on May 15th. To prepare for the Richmond Conference, Lee called his senior lieutenant and sole surviving Corps commander, James Longstreet, to Army headquarters at Fredericksburg. There, over the course of three days, May 11th to 13th, the two men intensely examined Confederate grand strategy and possible future operations of the Army of Northern Virginia. Prior to this, Longstreet had been one of the leading proponents of the idea of sending a portion of Lee's army out west. In fact, Longstreet said it should be his divisions that were sent west. We won't speculate on Longstreet's motivations for advocating such a plan, except to say that during the course of the Civil War, James Longstreet would prove himself to be an ambitious man who, at least in his own mind, deserved a high-level independent command. Uh, but in any case, here in May 1863, as he met with Robert E. Lee, Longstreet underwent an abrupt change of heart when Lee confided to him a plan to march the army north through Maryland and into Pennsylvania. In a May 13th letter to one of his key supporters in the Confederate Congress, Longstreet was surely reflecting Lee's opinion and his, Longstreet's, own agreement with it when he wrote that now, with regard to the Army of Northern Virginia, there, quote, is a fair prospect of forward movement. That being the case, we can spare nothing from this army to reinforce in the West. Longstreet would later claim that Lee, at this time, told him the army would march north with the intention of forcing the enemy to fight a battle on ground of the Confederates' own choosing. That is, Longstreet would later say it was his understanding Lee would employ a general offensive strategy in marching north, but when it came time to fight a battle, Lee would fight it with defensive tactics. Longstreet would later claim that at Gettysburg, Lee changed the plan in midstream by going over to the tactical offensive. And spoiler alert, Longstreet would not be happy about it. That's a bone of contention we'll pick over at a later time, but for now, we'll simply note that after their discussions at Army headquarters in May, Longstreet declared himself an enthusiastic supporter of Lee's plan to march north. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Lee met with Jefferson Davis and James Seddon at the War Department on Friday, May 15th, he surely went well-prepared to argue his case. He had written to Davis just a month earlier of his belief that, quote, we should assume the aggressive. By this, Lee meant that he thought the best course for his army, and in fact the best course for any Confederate army, was seizing the strategic initiative rather than surrendering it to the enemy. Assuming the aggressive, as he put it, had been Lee's guiding principle from the moment he first took command of the Army of Northern Virginia almost a year earlier, in June 1862. And now, as he and Longstreet had just discussed, assuming the aggressive meant Lee wanted to march north and take the war across the Potomac into Pennsylvania. But if Robert E. Lee went to the May 15th meeting prepared to argue his case, then it may be assumed that Secretary Seddon, who was determined and dedicated, also came to the conference still looking for some way to solve the Vicksburg problem. After all, Vicksburg remained the Confederacy's overriding crisis of the moment. The latest message that had reached Richmond from Mississippi Governor John Pettus had read, quote, Hour of trial is upon us. We look to you for assistance. Let it be speedy. If the decision on Pickett's troops five days earlier had ruled out direct aid to Pemberton, then perhaps there was still the possibility of help in the form of reinforcement of Joe Johnston's Army of Relief or of Braxton Bragg's Army in Tennessee. Seddon had managed to get three brigades, about 7,700 men, from PGT Beauregard in Charleston to send west, but any further troops would have to come from Lee's army and Seddon, at the Richmond Conference, surely raised this as a possibility. But just the month before, Lee had addressed this very idea of detaching troops from his army, and it's likely he restated his views now. Before, he had written, quote, I believe the enemy in every department outnumbers us, and it is difficult to say from which department troops can with safety be spared. Well, Robert E. Lee certainly didn't see how the Army of Northern Virginia could safely spare any troops. Lee, in fact, had repeatedly expressed his view that, as he put it, quote, this army, if possible, ought to be strengthened. At the May 15th conference, Lee, as the Confederacy's most successful general, no doubt laid out his simple, convincing argument in his typically quiet, authoritative way. He almost certainly pointed out that to send aid west, as Seddon proposed, 
would mean that Lee's army in Virginia would necessarily be weakened and thereby put in danger. Perhaps Lee clinched his argument with some variation of what he had said to Seddon back on May 10th, quote, You can therefore see the odds against us and decide whether the line of Virginia is more in danger than the line of Mississippi. In an article in a 2002 issue of North and South magazine, Stephen Sears wrote, Armchair critics would come to call Lee's position on Vicksburg as parochial. His strategic focus, it was said, bore solely on the Virginia theater at the expense of the failing Confederate fortunes in the West. Yet at this Richmond strategy conference in mid-May 1863, Lee could scarcely have taken any other stance. His intelligence sources told of his opponent, Joe Hooker, being heavily reinforced. If that pointed to a renewed federal campaign, it could be met with no better odds than before, which had been bad enough. The return of Longstreet's two divisions to Lee from Southside Virginia did little more than make up for the Army's Chancellorsville losses. Robert E. Lee was right. The choice for Jefferson Davis was Virginia or Mississippi, and just then there were simply no troops to spare in Virginia. Obviously, with this show, we wanted to talk about Davis, Seddon, and Lee's May 15th conference at the War Department in Richmond, since that was a pivotal moment in Confederate history. And although, unfortunately, no notes have survived regarding that meeting, it does seem to be possible to reconstruct what was likely discussed at it by using recollections and from the correspondence of the three men before and after the conference. Our discussion up to this point has focused mainly on Lee's efforts to resist the pressure to send troops from his army out west. But successfully resisting the pressure to send troops west was just one of Lee's goals at the Richmond Conference, because he also went to the meeting to secure approval to take his army north, across the Potomac. So, at this Richmond meeting, goal number one for Lee resist pressure to send troops from Virginia out west, and then goal number two, get the green light to march his army north. Much later, Lee would say that at first, quote, Mr. Davis did not like the prospect of the movement northward, end quote. Apparently, the Confederate president was worried about Richmond's safety if it were to lose its principal shield, that is, if Lee's army marched north. In this worry for his capital city, Davis was not unlike Abraham Lincoln, if we remember Lincoln's continual concern for the protection of Washington. With regard to Davis's worry for Richmond's safety, Robert E. Lee apparently expressed his belief that, quote, by concealing his movements and managing well, he could get so far north as to threaten Washington before they could check him, and this, once done, he knew there was no need of further fears about their moving on Richmond. Whatever argument Robert E. Lee used to address Davis's concerns for the safety of Richmond, 
It was persuasive enough that the Confederate president gave Lee the green light to take his army northward. That meant that, having secured Davis's approval, Lee could, as he put it, assume the aggressive. We'll talk in the next show about Lee's reasons, both stated and unstated, for wanting to strike north up into Pennsylvania. But there is one aspect of that that we wanted to address in this episode, since the deteriorating situation in Mississippi was such a big part of this show. And so we wanted to bring this up here because sometimes you'll hear someone say, or see that someone has written, that one of Lee's reasons for advancing northward was that he believed it would draw Grant's army away from Vicksburg. But there's actually nothing in Lee's surviving papers or in any other records of the Army of Northern Virginia to support that assertion. In formulating his movement north into Pennsylvania, Lee certainly had several goals in mind, but none of them included the possibility of pulling Grant's forces away from Vicksburg. We think the most that can be said in this regard is that although Lee doubted that his movement would compel Grant to loosen his hold on Vicksburg in any way, shape, or form, he might, perhaps, have reasoned that a major Confederate battlefield victory on northern soil would at the very least help to offset the probable loss of Vicksburg. In other words, Vicksburg might be a lost cause, but if Lee could smash the Federal's main eastern field army on its home ground up in Pennsylvania, then the effects of such a stupendous victory would, if not exactly make up for the loss of Vicksburg, then perhaps go a long way toward counteracting or lessening its impact. After all, Robert E. Lee certainly believed in the preeminence of the Eastern Theater, and therefore he'd believed that a major Confederate battlefield victory here would count for more in the long run than any enemy's success out West. Right. And you can tell by his words and his actions that in Lee's mind, there was always the tantalizing prospect that a crushing, total battlefield victory here in the East a Waterloo-like triumph in a single day's showdown battle would be the key that secured Confederate independence. Uh, Well, with that, we're actually probably starting to get ahead of ourselves since we said we'd wait until the next episode to talk about Lee's reasons for moving north. But we did just want to point out in this show, since we talked about Vicksburg quite a bit, that we don't think you can say one of the reasons Lee marched northward was because he thought a move up into Pennsylvania would pull Grant's army away from Vicksburg. There's just no evidence to support that conclusion. In striking north into the Keystone State, Lee certainly had several goals in mind, but none of them included the possibility of pulling Grant's forces away from Vicksburg. At the conclusion of the May 15th conference, it's debatable whether either Davis or Seddon fully understood Lee's plans or grasped precisely what he had in mind as far as a movement north into enemy territory, 
But while no official directive was issued by Davis or Seddon formally approving the Pennsylvania campaign, there can't be the slightest doubt they approved of Lee's designs. In short, both Seddon and Davis fully agreed with Lee on the necessity of an offensive movement by the Army of Northern Virginia. If Lee didn't assume the aggressive and take the war to the enemy, the only other option was to surrender the initiative to the Federals here in Virginia, with the probable end result that Lee's army would have to retreat into the defenses of Richmond, and to Davis and Seddon, that was unthinkable. Secretary Seddon, the earlier advocate of a Western strategy, now assured Lee, quote, I concur entirely in your views of the importance of aggressive movements by your army. And so Robert E. Lee could leave Richmond and return to his headquarters at Fredericksburg, confident that he had Davis's and Seddon's support for a strike north. As Stephen Sears points out, quote, What was debated and decided at the War Department that 15th of May held the promise of reshaping the very direction of the war. In one sense, the conference revealed how the crisis in Mississippi had passed well beyond Richmond's reach. The drama there seemed likely to play out without any further intervention from the Confederate capital. On the other hand, General Lee was persuasive in his argument that in the Virginia theater, the road to opportunity pointed north, and the way was open. Lee proposed to take the war right into the Yankee heartland. At the very least, a success in Pennsylvania would offset any failure at Vicksburg. At the most, a great victory on enemy soil might put peace within Richmond's reach. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Gettysburg by Stephen W. Sears. In this episode, we referenced an article by Sears. However, this is his book on Gettysburg, obviously, and it's a great narrative history of the campaign and battle. It's definitely one of the top three books we'd recommend for someone wanting to learn more about Gettysburg. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Before we get too far along here, we just wanted to give you guys a programming note as far as the release of the next episode, and it's that while we usually drop in new episodes on Sundays, we won't be releasing the next show until Monday. So if you look for it to come up on Sunday, you'll be sorely disappointed. Uh, And then we're also planning on releasing the first members episode about Jeb Stewart's ride on that Monday. So the members of the Strawfoot Brigade can look forward to that. Speaking of new members, we're a bit behind on our shout outs, so we better get caught up. Thanks to Tony, Steve, Tyler, Richard, and Misha. Scott, Paul, Elizabeth, Mark, Steve, Bill, and Alan. W. Harris, Graham, James, Dennis, John, Peter R., and Peter J. Marinus, Hayden, Lynn, Randy, Robert, Vinay, and Constantine. 
Then Constantine asked if we could give a special mention to him and his fellow reenactors in C Company, 63rd Pennsylvania Volunteers, out of Beaver County, PA. So, well, there you go, Constantine. And then we also wanted to say thank you to Tom B. and Xavier L. for their donations to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, just a reminder that this episode of the podcast was sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy, by Donald Miller. We're happy to team up with Simon & Schuster to promote this excellent history of a pivotal campaign. It's one that you'll want to have on your Civil War bookshelf. Donald Miller's Vicksburg will be available on October 29th in hardcover, ebook and audiobook. Pre-order a copy now online or reserve one at your local bookstore or library.